take our time going through it and look at a lot of scriptures and make sure that we fully understand why we do what we do when we're worshiping. So, why do we worship? And I have a lot of scriptures for us to go through. Instead of asking somebody to try to read, it bounces around a lot. So I tried to put them all up on the screen. They're not always going to be this small, I promise. Um, but if you are taking notes, I encourage you, maybe just jot the scriptures down. You can go back and look them up instead of trying to write them all out while we're going. Why do we worship? And I like interaction. Why do we worship? Yeah, we're commanded to do it. It's a pattern in the New Testament. We're shown that the early Christians did the exact same thing. Do we know that what we do in our worship today is what God is wanting from us? Do we know that we're correct in what we do? Are we, do we know we're correct in the way that we're doing those things? Or are we only looking back to tradition? Well, this is the way my parents did it. This is the way that congregations in Cookville have done it, or even congregations in the United States have always done it. But maybe, I don't know, a couple thousand years ago they might have done it a little different, but it's okay, this is the way we do it today. Is that the way that we look at the way we worship today? John Calvin, and, I, and I'm hesitant to quote um, outside the Scripture very much, but he made a statement one time, and I, th- I think if you really sit and think about this, it's, it holds a lot of truth. It says that the human heart is a factory of idolatry. The human heart is a factory of idolatry. And if you think about our lives today, what is it we take and we put idols in front of us? And it really gets back to the heart of we want to worship something. We want something to get our attention. We want to, to pour what we have into something. Whether that be a hobby, whether that be church and God and the Scriptures, whatever it is, we're, we're going to give our all to something and we're going to have a passion. All right? That needs to be worship for us. That needs to be God. That needs to be the Scriptures. If it's not, we can very easily turn other things into idols in front of us. What I want us to look at is the type of worship. There's some key points I want to hit at the beginning. Some very fundamental things we've got to make sure we hit before we really get over to the singing part. And I'm going to try to go through this fairly quickly because I know we've got a lot of stuff to try to hit in what, 30 minutes we got left. So, Jesus tells us, and this is where it says we're commanded, there's a pattern for it. I'm going to read this real quick. It's on the screen, you guys can read it as well. It said, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is when he's talking to the woman at the well. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And then Jesus said to her, said, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So there's a lot of stuff that we can pull from that, and a lot of people tend to focus on the spirit and truth part of it. We're going to do the same thing. We're going to focus on the truth part of it tonight. What we do has to be according to Scripture. It has to be according to truth. There is absolute truth. Society today wants to tell us, well, there is no absolute truth. It's all relative. It's you can create your own truth. What's true for you? What, what feels right for you? No, Scriptures tells us there is the truth. That means we have to follow it the way God wants us to. I'm not going to get into the spirit side of this uh, discussion tonight. That can be a whole other lesson in and of itself. So, if God wants us to worship Him in spirit and truth, 
does that mean it's possible for us to worship God not in truth? I see a couple heads nodding. What's some examples? Is there examples in Scripture of people not worshiping in truth? First one I had up there. Very good. Nadab and Abihu. What, what happened with Nadab and Abihu? Since you started, you want to explain it? Yeah. So, I don't know if, if you can't hear that. They offered strange fire to the Lord. What Nadab and Abihu were doing is they were offering sacrifices. Listen to that part, because that's easy for us to skip over. They were offering sacrifices. It's not like they were blowing it off. It's not like they were just saying, well, this is stupid. We're not going to do this. Uh, these sacrifices don't really do anything. I don't want to mess with this today. They were offering the sacrifices that God told them to offer. But they had a portion of that wrong. They used what scriptures call strange fire. Basically means the way they got the fire to do the sacrifice with, it, it, still had, it was still fire. I mean, fire is fire, isn't it? So what was the issue with the fire? The source of the fire. Where did it come from? God told them a very specific way when they're offering these sacrifices, how the sacrifices are supposed to be done. I mean, you can go back to Deuteronomy and read through stuff. I mean, it gets very, very detailed what you're supposed to do. Well, they didn't do it by the method that God said he wanted it done. And so their worship was not accepted. Then we look at Paul when he's talking to the church at Corinth. They were partaking of the Lord's Supper. They had communion as part of what they were doing, but he was basically chastising them because they weren't doing it right. They weren't doing it the way they were supposed to be doing it. So that in and of itself shows us it is possible for us to worship God in a way that he does not want. Helps if I go forward. We're told over in Matthew chapter 15, it says, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They're honoring God. They're worshiping God. They're praising God. They're doing things that God wants, but their heart's not in it. Their, heart's not, their heart is far from them. But it's not because they're just doing it lackadaisical or they're just going through the motions and they don't really care and it's just blah to them. They don't, yeah. That's not what it was. It says the reason for it, it says, in vain do they worship me because they're teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. What that tells us is if we're not teaching and we're not doing the things that God wants us to do, by the way that he wants us to do it. If we're only doing it by tradition, the way that we want to do it, our hearts are not with God. Now that means, if you look at people out in the denominational world today and in all kinds of different religions around the world, and I would even say outside Christendom, and when I say Christendom, I'm meaning just the group of people in the world that claim Christianity. All right? There's a lot of people that claim to fall under that dome of Christendom. Even outside of that, when you start getting into Muslim and you get into Buddhist and you get into all this other stuff, do you think those people are sincere in what they're doing? Yeah. I, I, I would doubt there's many people that claim themselves to be religious of some kind that aren't sincere in what they believe. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it because what's the point? But this tells us we can do it wrong and our hearts aren't really in it regardless of how sincere we are. So, here's a question. Does God have to accept our worship today? Why? Does he have to accept any kind of worship that we want to give him? Well, we've already looked at a couple of examples. But why not? 
God has told us exactly what He wants from us. And a lot of people will say, well, well the, the way God interacts with us has changed. And, and when we got into the New Testament, it's all about our heart and our feeling and the emotion side of it, that the rules and, and the guidelines and what, what Christ laid out for us and, or laid out for the children of Israel in the Old Testament, that mindset kind of changed. God's, God's not a changing God. Right? The, the law changed. God did not change. God has always expected something very specific from His people when it comes to the way that He wants to be worshipped. Again, we saw that with Nadab and Abihu, but we also saw it with Paul talking to the Corinth church because of the way that they were doing the Lord's Supper. And again, with that being in the New Testament. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 29 says. It says, You who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, Who sees us? Who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. It's the idea that we're the clay. When a potter sits at the wheel and it's sitting there spinning and they're molding this vase or bowl or cup or whatever the potter's doing, God is that potter. We are that clay sitting on that wheel. He can mold us and shape us however He wants to. It's not in us to decide what our shape is going to be. Isaiah tells us it's God. He's the potter that's going to do that for us. So, this is something that's very important for us to understand. And this is something I, well, I would say it's kind of in the last couple generations. I don't know. I've only been here for the last couple generations. So maybe it was before that. But from what I've been told and what I've heard, this is something fairly new that's come along. Is everything we do in life worship? Exactly. I mean, that, that's, it may seem like an extreme example, but that's exactly right. You'll have so many people today that will tell you everything you do in life is worship. The way that I drive my car and the way I interact with people when I'm going down the road, I'm not going to have road rage. I'm going to follow the speed limit. That's my worship to God. I'm a spiritual person. I'm not really a church-going person, so I like to go camping, and I like to be out early on a Sunday morning sitting out in the woods and watching the sunrise. That's my worship. Me appreciating what God has created. That's my worship. When I go out and I, I feed somebody who's hungry or I, I help somebody who's homeless, so I take a blanket to someone who's out on the street tonight because it's going to be really cold. That's my way of worshiping God. There's a large, large push for that in the Christian world today. And again, I use that term very loosely. Is everything we do worship? And no, because if, if that's true, then it really does go to the extreme of you're using the restroom. It's not worshiping God. I mean, if everything's worship, what about when you're sinning? We all sin. So is our, the act of committing sin a worship to God? No. I mean, it's not even logical. So you, not everything can be worshiped to God. And there's several examples I've got in here. The wise men going to uh, Jesus when he was born, they went to him to worship. Right? They were going to a very specific place to worship. But this right here has always been the kicker for me, and, and this is kind of what seals that deal, that not everything you're doing is worship. Genesis 22, verse 5. This is when Abraham was getting ready to go and offer Isaac. There was a, a group of people with them, and Abraham said, 
Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. If they were going to go over there and worship, that means the worship they were doing was a very specific act. It's not something that they were currently doing. Because if they were currently worshiping God by obeying His command by going to the the sacrifice or going to perform the sacrifice, and that would have been worship, then there would have been no reason for them to have said, we're going over there to worship. So not everything we do is worship. Now, is there a difference in service to God and worship to God? By us taking food to someone who is hungry. It's getting cold right now. If we see somebody on the street, on the sidewalk, laying there shivering, and we take them a blanket, is that service to God or is that worship to God? It's service. All right? It is something God wants from us, but we cannot mix those two things together. And too many people in society today want to, con- want to join those at the hip and say, well, anytime I'm doing service, it's actually worship to God. That is not true. And there's several different places in Scripture. You can look at that. Another one, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. Where was he on his way to? Jerusalem. Why? He's going there to worship. If worship could be anywhere and he could do anything, why was he making such a long trip to go to Jerusalem to do that? It wouldn't have made sense. So, one more question. Who decides how we get to worship? If God doesn't have to accept our worship, who decides? The Bible. What input on worship do the elders have? Matters of convenience, matters of expediency. And basically what that gets down to is, is what do we do in order to be able to carry out the commands that God gave to us? Such as we're supposed to give. You don't find in Scripture that we have a tray that we're supposed to pass around to collect those funds in. That's considered a matter of expediency. I've known some congregations that will literally lay a basket up front and people come put their money in at the end. Would that be okay? Sure, you're still giving. You're still following the command. That's part of worship what you're supposed to be doing. But the expedient side, and that's where the elders get involved, is how are we going to carry that out? How many songs are we going to have? Why do we come on Wednesday night instead of Tuesday night? Or why do we come Wednesday night at all? Why do we have a second service on Sunday nights? There's all kinds of things. But do they get to control what we do during our worship? the acts of worship themselves, and how those acts are carried out. No. That is something that comes straight from Scripture. And again, this if you look at an example, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where it's talking about Cain and Abel. It says, By faith, Cain offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. That Abel offered, I may have said that backwards. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commanded as, or commended as righteous. In Genesis, we're never told exactly what God said you have to do in your sacrifice. All we know is Cain and Abel went and did a sacrifice. We don't read anything before that that God laid out instructions of how to do that. But the implication is he had to have told them at some point. All right? It may not be recorded for us in Scripture, but God had to have communicated to them what exactly he was looking for in that worship from them because Abel did it right, Cain did not. So, Cain and Abel did not get to decide how they wanted to worship. Otherwise, Cain's offering would have been just as acceptable as Abel's was. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at the Old Testament some. 
And a lot of people will point out, yeah, but we don't, we don't live by the Old Testament today. We don't need to go to the Old Testament when it comes to looking at acts of worship. Remember what we're told in 2 Timothy. When Paul's writing to Timothy, he tells him that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's all God-breathed. God breathed it all out. It means He spoke it. There's a whole thing we can look at to see exactly what that means. We don't have time in here right now to do that. But when Paul said this to Timothy, what are the Scriptures he's talking about? Was 2 Timothy one of the Scriptures? No, it's a letter. He just, I mean, he's in the process of writing it to him. It's not a scripture that's in the Bible. The Bible itself didn't exist. The scriptures he's talking about right here is Old Testament and everything that's coming from prophets, that's coming through the inspired apostles, all of that being pushed down is scripture. The Old Testament is included in scripture. It's there for us. It's profitable for us. We're told that here. Everything that God has written is profitable for us. So we don't ignore the Old Testament. It's not there just so that we have kind of a history of all the wars and conquering that happened. A lot of it is we learn God. We learn His interaction with His people, what He expects from His people. We understand what God, how seriously He takes sin. We learn from that. I don't really know a better way to say it. How serious he takes this. A lot of people, again, today will look at what God wants from us in the New Testament and say, well, God's going to be lenient. God's going to be okay. All right? God, God just wants me to be happy. Okay, well, if you look in the Old Testament, though, that's not the, that's not the God that's portrayed in the Old Testament. All right? Now, I'm not saying that we're worshiping uh, a God who's sitting there waiting for us to mess up and to strike us down. That wasn't the God of the Old Testament either. People who look at God like that in the Old Testament are just picking and choosing certain little passages they want to look at. You look at the whole thing, it's a very loving God, but it's also a God who is just, who expects us to do what he wants us to do. So with all that being said, what are the acts of worship? Because i got 15 minutes left and we're just now getting to the point. What are the acts of worship? So when I say that we're going to come together and we're going to worship God, what are those things? Singing? Pray, read scripture, Lord's Supper, offering. That's it. When you look in the New Testament today, there are five acts of worship that were done by the New Testament church or that were very specifically commanded for us to do. We partake of the Lord's Supper, we're to give, we pray, we sing. And then reading scripture, teaching, praying, or teaching, preaching, that all lumps together into one spot. Some of that, again, is given by direct command. Some of that is just by example that we see the early church doing that when they came together as a group. So, I want to focus specifically then on singing for the rest of the time. We know that singing is supposed to be part of our worship. There are several scriptures. I'm not going to hit all of them. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another and in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. When I was little, that was always confusing to me as psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Well, if that's all the same thing, then why list it three times? Why say it in three different categories? So I, I did a little research on this. I don't know if this is correct, but I'm just going to share um, what I've read in a commentary by David Lipscomb. And I've got it here somewhere if I can find it. 
Oh, here it is. So David Lipscomb in his commentary, he, he broke these down going back to the original language. So again, this is written by a man that's not inspired, but it might give you an idea of what we're doing when we come together to worship. Psalms are songs of praise, that we are singing praises to God. That's why the book of Psalms is called Psalms. When you read through them, those are songs that David had written praising God. Um, when we look at hymns, hymns are songs of thanksgiving and they're teaching dependence upon God. And then spiritual songs would be songs that are intended to inspire or cultivate a feeling of devotion to God. Every song we sing, every song that we use during worship should fall probably into one of those three categories. And if you think about it, I don't know of a, a song we sing that doesn't. All right. It's either praising God, it's teaching, or it's trying to, to motivate us spiritually. So, we'll skip over that one. Now I want us to get into the things that seem to be controversial. And I say controversial meaning that what we do here in the Lord's Church, what we do in the churches of Christ, is looked at by people outside of the church as being weird. I'm just going to say it. It's strange to them. If somebody comes and asks you, why don't you guys have a choir up here? What do you say? You know what to say. Is it tradition? Yep. So, what, what he said is most of the time, like in movies and things like that, when you have a church scene that is depicted in a movie or TV show, you typically will see a choir or something in it. But what that tends to be is almost a performance by a group that is there singing while the audience sitting out here is listening to it. All right? They're singing, which is commanded, So, there's a key thing that was just said. They're performing, and Toby kind of hit on this too, they're performing and the people in the audience are sitting and listening. Who is the, who is the audience of our worship? God. God is the audience of our worship. Our worship is to Him. All right? Our worship is not to each other. Yes, now we, we are to edify, we are to build each other up while we're doing it, but again, he is our audience, which gets us back to the commands from Scripture. When we look at all the different passages that look at singing, all singing in Scripture is commanded that Christians sing. At no place will you ever find in the New Testament where examples of the early church that you had certain groups of people singing, or you had only a few people singing and others sitting there listening and enjoying it. It does not happen in worship. Every time that singing is talked about, it is a group effort. It is a congregational thing. Now, how many people in here think you sing like a perfect angel? None of us, right? Who in here thinks we maybe squeak a little bit and bring the, bring the whole tone of our singing of the congregation down a little bit? Nobody? I see a couple of hands going slowly going up. Does God care if we sing... No. 
God care, what, what was said is God cares about the state, of the state of our heart while we are singing. That's true. Now, does that mean we should never really care and try to be better at singing? No. We work and try to get better at our prayers. We have preachers that, that study to try to get better at preaching, try to get better at public speaking. Should singing be something that we try to get better at? Absolutely. But if we can't carry a note to save our lives, do you think God wants us to sit there quiet? No. God's command is for us to sing, and that means everybody. All right? And I will say, as a song leader, and I promise the other song leaders in here can say the same thing, we see everybody when we're up here. We see members of the Lord's church a lot of times, and it's in every congregation. It's not just here. I've been leading singing for 25 years. Every single congregation I've ever been at singing, you can see people just sitting out there not singing. And I'm not calling anybody out, but I want everybody to be aware that is not what God commanded. And if we're not willing to sing to God, we're basically telling him, I'm, I'm not doing it. I don't care what you commanded me to do in worship. I'm not going to perform that act of worship because I don't think I'm good enough at it. Just remember that next time we're singing. Now I really want to get into the instrument part, and I have six minutes left. Oh, I knew this was going to happen. What about instruments in worship? If somebody comes to you and says, hey, why don't you guys have a piano up here? Not even a full-blown band. I mean, you get some stuff that's like a rock concert, but not that. You just have a very small, simple piano sitting over in the corner, and it's not intended to drown out everybody. The entire congregation is still singing, and somebody will say, you guys use a PA system to amplify the voice of the, of the song leader so everybody can hear the song leader, and that's just a tool that you use to aid with the singing so that everybody kind of stays together. They can hear the song leader leading everything. You use hymn books so that everybody can see the words. You use a projector to throw the words up here. What do you say if somebody says, what's the difference in all that and a piano sitting over here because the piano is just helping us stay on, on key? That's the only reason it's there. It's just to help everybody stay on key. There is. So what was said is there's a difference in an aid and an addition. That is true. I want us to look at this from a little bit different perspective tonight. Because this is something, I'll be honest, I struggled with this for a long time, well after I'd become a Christian. Not that I believe that we should be using instruments, but how do I answer somebody when they tell me, you should have, an, you should have a piano up there, or you can't tell me I can't. I didn't know how to answer that. I didn't know how to, how to show them in Scripture. Because all I could say is, well, it doesn't say we're supposed to have instruments. Well, it doesn't say you're supposed to have a bathroom in the building either. It doesn't say you're supposed to have a building. So how do you answer it? That's what I want us to look at real quickly. So, here's the things to remember. And this is why we went over those several things at the beginning before we got to this. Our focus is to please God. Our focus is not to please ourselves. It's God who decides how we worship. We don't get to decide that, and God does not have to accept our worship. There's several examples in Scripture of people who are worshiping God, but they didn't do it the way he wanted, and he did not accept it. Which means, if we're not doing it right today, God is not required to accept our worship just because we offer it to him. So, and I've got on here 1 Corinthians 2.11, basically quoting back to the Old Testament, it said, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 
which means even if I don't understand why, if God said to do it, I can't put myself in God's place and say, well, this is what God really means, or this is what God was thinking when he said that. No one knows the spirit of a man except that man. No one knows the thoughts and spirit of God except God. All right? And we're told back in the Old Testament that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. We don't have to understand it. We have to obey it. Now, does that mean we just blow it off and don't try to understand it? No. This can be understood. So, if you look back in the Old Testament, I'm going to go through some scriptures really quickly. Numbers chapter 10. I had a whole passage I want to read on this, but I'm not going to just for time's sake. It says, On the day of your gladness also, I'll preface what happened in the first, ten, first nine verses of Numbers chapter 10. God laid out when they were building the tabernacle that when they wanted to gather all the children of Israel together, when they were trying to signal to the children of Israel that, hey, there's somebody coming to attack us, when they wanted to get just the, the chiefs together, God told them you make two silver trumpets that were to be hammered out. And there's all kinds of things that they would be used for as signals and stuff, whether you blow them together, whether you blow one at a time. But it also says in verse 10, On the day of your gladness also, and at your appointed feast, and at the beginnings of your months, you shall blow the trumpets, those same two silver trumpets, over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God, I am the Lord your God. Well, that want to show is, in tabernacle worship in the Old Testament, there were two trumpets. Those trumpets were specifically called out by God that were supposed to be part of those sacrifices. All right? Now let's look at when things move it over to temple worship. First Chronicles, if we go read, chapter 16. It says, Then he appointed, and this is David, he appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord to invoke, to thank, and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, and second to him was Zechariah, Jael, I'm not going to read all those names correctly, so I'll skip on past them, who were to play harps and lyres, and Asaph was to sound the cymbals. So you now have harps, lyres, and cymbals that have been added. But we're told that David added those. And so people have pointed out before, well, David added instruments in Old Testament worship, and God was obviously okay with it. So what's the difference in us adding instruments in worship today? Why would God not be okay with it? What's the difference? This says David added these instruments in. But let's look over at chapter 23. This is also... David talking, it says, There were 4,000 gatekeepers added, and 4,000 shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. So did, God, Jesus, sorry, did David introduce them without God's authority? Over in Second Chronicles. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres. That's the three that were told in First Chronicles that David added. According to the command of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. David added instruments in the temple worship, but it was not of his own accord. Just because in 1 Chronicles, when it first talks about those instruments, and it doesn't mention that God told him to do it, we're told later in Scripture, God told him to put those in there. When the temple was torn down, it was being built back. Every single time you read about it, it's in Ezra, it's in Nehemiah, you look at it. Every time it talks about that it added back the instruments of David. The instruments of David that they always add back after they've gone to Babylonian captivity, after they've been attacked, it's a reference back to the harp, the lyre, and the cymbal. 
those three were always added back to temple worship. So, now when we get in temple worship, and one of the passages does mention the two trumpets are also to be there too. Those two trumpets never went away. So in the temple, you have trumpets, you have a harp, you have a lyre, and you have cymbals. Here's what I want us to get at. What about the church? That's under Old Testament law. The tabernacle worship and the temple worship do not exist today. So what God commanded to be part of the worship under that is not for us. But what does God command for us today? What does God mention for the church to use in addition to the singing that they do? Nothing. Not one time will you ever find in Scripture in the New Testament any reference of any kind to an instrument that God commands for us to use during our worship today. And a lot of people may say, well, what's the big deal just because he didn't say it? There has never been a point in history, and this is the key point, there has never been a point in history with God's interaction with his people when he's telling them what he expects from them in worship. Never has he not told them how he expects the singing to be done. When David added in the instruments in the tabernacle, in the temple worship, we are told in Second Chronicles, God told him to do that. God specified what he wanted under the tabernacle worship, which was two trumpets. He told under the temple worship to add in the harp, the lyre, and the cymbal. But under the New Testament worship today, he says we are to sing. There is zero reference to any kind of instrument. So it's not just the simple fact that, well, God didn't specify. Because it, that almost leaves the impression that God's never really cared. God has always cared about the instruments that to be, are to be used in worship to him. Do you think if they had gone in and added, I don't know, they may have, maybe they had some kind of drum back then, probably not the drums we think of today, but some kind of bongo drums or snare drums or something, do you think God would have cared if they added that in temple worship? Absolutely. He told them what to add in there. If they went and added something else, that's now going against God's commands. For God to break from that and to say, okay, now we're moving to New Testament worship, to the worship in the church, for him to say, you know what, I don't really care about instruments anymore, that would completely go against the pattern of everything God's ever done. Right? So that's the key I want us to remember. God specifies how he wants us to worship him. It's not our choice in how we get to do it. He does not have to accept any kind of worship that we want to give him. He can deny it if we don't do it right. And at no point in history has he ever laid out how he wants worship to him to be done in song and in music and not specified the instrument. Which means, by omitting the reference to the instrument is indication to us he doesn't want it. Any questions? Sorry I pushed that really fast. And of course the second bell rang. If anybody's got questions, come find me afterwards. We can talk about it. And I've got more material to kind of back some of this up too if you got. Thank you for your attention.